and welcome back to spill the murder so last time over here we were listening to episodes one and two of the podcast your own backyard in episode one we heard um from chris the podcaster from your own backyard talking about who kirsten smart who kirsten denise smart was and her background where she came from who her parents were how many children her parents had how her friends were, how she was with a friend, and um, how she was in school, everything like that before her disappearance. Then in episode two, we get to um, more of the attacker, um, Paul Flores. We get to more of him and his background and who he was as a person, and all that with his friends well air quotes around friends because we don't know if they potentially are friends or just hang around his crowd but we got to know them sorry ladies and gentlemen i'm tired okay it's like eight it's eight fifty three at night in new york so i'm tired but anyway um yeah we went to the, uh benjamin flores and stuff but now we're gonna do um episode three which is called their own backyard so in the description of this episode it says if kirsten denise smart is dead where did her body end up chris the podcaster follows a trail left behind a lost piece of evidence and retraces paul flores's movements in years after all right okay let me get that set up so give me one minute on a drive through arroyo grande last spring i'm heading northeast towards the 227 a rural highway that takes you from ag up to san luis obispo through edna valley an alternate route to the 101 a 1,500-mile freeway that goes from Los Angeles all the way up to the state of Washington. Before I merge onto the official on-ramp of the 227, I turn into a residential neighborhood, and everything suddenly gets a lot quieter. As trucks behind me continue on the state route, I turn up a steep street surrounded by wooden fences. I expect to be able to keep driving, but the top of the street turns into a cul-de-sac and I realize that the only way out is to turn back around the way I just came from. In the 10 seconds that it takes me to make a U-turn, I see a man emerge from the driveway next to me. He's short, in his late 70s with white hair, glasses, and a mustache, and wearing a light-colored t-shirt and sweatpants. It's almost 2 p.m., but he looks a little disheveled, like he just got out of bed. He stands there and watches me closely as I turn back down the steep street. I don't say anything to him. I'm not here to cause trouble. It seems unproductive at this moment. But I do turn and make eye contact with him before I drive off. It's a brief mutual acknowledgement. We've never met, but I know exactly who he is. And he knows exactly why I'm driving by his house. 
This is Ruben Flores, Paul Flores's father. And this is the house the Flores family moved into in June of 1992, when they left their home in Torrance. I'm still buzzing from the encounter a half mile later, when I pass a blue nautical-themed house near the village. In the driveway, Mike McConville is working on his van, and his girlfriend, Susan Flores, is climbing into her car. Just seconds after their house is out of sight, I make eye contact with a striking blonde college student with dark, friendly eyes. This is Kristen Smart on the infamous billboard in the Arroyo Grande village. I park in front of a nearby coffee shop and stop to think for a minute. It's the first time I've given this particular thought any serious consideration. Ruben and Susan Flores are both still living in the houses they lived in back in 1996, at the time that Kristen went missing. Addresses that have been printed in newspapers, whose curbs have been the site of numerous candlelight vigils and protests. They're easy to find online. Their son, Paul Flores, has lived in the South Bay since late 1996, and their daughter lives a thousand miles north. Like I said, the family only moved up from Torrance in 1992, and almost all of their relatives still live there today except the two of them, in the two separate houses they were living in, on May 25th, 1996. Their lives have been anything but peaceful here. With a population of just over 15,000, most people in town know who they are, where they live, and what they've been accused of. When locals approach them, they often end up being asked to leave by police minutes later. I'm sure they both know the AGPD phone number by heart now. They spend days looking out their windows, waiting for someone to approach their front doors, a camera sitting on their windowsill at all times, ready to threateningly take pictures of anyone who gets too close. If you think my run-in with Ruben was a coincidence, you can find him on Google Street View, giving the same intimidating stare down to the Google car. So when you're in your 70s, your nearest family member is 200 miles away, and the residents of your neighborhood are constantly eyeing you with suspicion. Why would you not move somewhere else? Anywhere else? Sitting in my car in front of this coffee shop, I can only come up with two reasonable options. The first is that they love Arroyo Grande. I mean, really love it. In spite of the lack of privacy, the tension they must feel every time they step into a grocery store and over two decades of calling the police on passers-by who stop for a little too long to tie their shoes. They sincerely believe that their quality of life couldn't be better anywhere else but this small, beautiful town. That, or they're afraid to leave because they're protecting something.
It's no secret now that the early days of this investigation lacked a certain sense of urgency. Even after searching Paul Flores's empty and clean Cal Poly dorm room, a room that four trained cadaver dogs alerted to the scent of human decomposition in, it takes the sheriff's department another two weeks to get a search warrant for the Flores family home in Arroyo Grande, and another week after that to serve the warrant. On July 22, 1996, when detectives show up to Ruben Flores's front door, Kristen Smart has already been missing for two months. The search of the home is short, but police end up seizing a black police baton hanging in the entryway of the house, illegal for private citizens to own. Three separate Telegram Tribune articles about Kristen's disappearance, one hidden under Ruben's mattress, one hidden under Paul's mattress, and one from the kitchen, and a receipt from Cal Poly for room 128 in Santa Lucia Hall. The newspaper articles in particular seem really suspicious. Paul's name hasn't been released to the public yet, so they're not saving the articles as a memento because they mention him. But what's weirder is what the police don't do in this search. They don't bring cadaver dogs, even though they detected human remains on Paul's dorm room mattress. They don't bring a forensics team, and they don't ask to search any of the Flores family's vehicles. In fact, it's pretty much just a visual inspection of the house. A spokesman for the sheriff's department later claims that this is because they weren't actually looking for Kristen. They were only looking for her belongings, like her friend Margarita's dorm key, something that would directly tie Paul to her disappearance. The whole thing is surprisingly lax. Reuben calls Susan when the detectives show up, early that morning, and she comes over and picks up Paul, and they both leave. What the investigators don't know at the time is that Susan isn't even currently living at the house with Reuben and Paul. She moved out back in April after filing for legal separation from Reuben and has been living in her own rental property on East Branch Street, which she abruptly pulled from papers just a week after she had listed it for rent. Remember how Paul joked with his Cal Poly roommate that he took Kristen to his mom's house? And how he told investigators on June 19th that he needed to leave his interview so he could clean up some concrete at his mom's house? It flies right over everyone's heads because they don't know that Susan was living somewhere else at the time. If they had caught it, they might have requested to search that house too because the inference you could make if someone is cleaning up concrete two weeks after a girl disappeared is that concrete first had to be either poured or broken just prior to June 19th. But they think that a rental property is just a rental property. So it goes unsearched for the entire summer. Two months later, on August 28th, Susan Flores lists the Branch Street home for rent in the Five Cities Times Press Recorder for $895 a month. The listing reads, Immaculate three-bedroom, two-bath, stove, refrigerator, water, trash, softener, and reverse osmosis system included. $1,200 security, no pets. The ad runs until September 6th, but she apparently doesn't find a renter. So on September 27th, she runs another ad, lowering the price to $8.75 a month. At the exact same time, a young married couple are visiting the wife's mother, who also lives on East Branch Street, eight houses down from Susan's rental. They've just moved up from Cypress, California, 
to work at Sierra Vista Regional Medical Center and are looking for a place in the area when they see that Susan's house has just gone up for rent. They apply and are accepted the same day. They move in on October 1st, 1996. The couple, Mary and Joe Lassiter, are in their mid-twenties and raising Mary's six-year-old son together. They love the house, with its large front windows that face the street, and the all-concrete backyard, which connects to their driveway. In fact, the only strange thing they notice after moving in is the postcards they start getting in their mailbox, some from locals and some with Stockton return addresses, asking them to cooperate with police and tell their son to come forward. The Lassiters have no idea what the letters are about. On a warm Saturday in October, just a few weeks after moving in, Mary pulls her white Acura Integra up the driveway, where it intersects with the backyard, so she can reach it with the hose. While she's cleaning the car, something shiny catches her eye, next to the front driver's side tire. Something that will finally make this location a point of interest for the investigation. A single woman's earring, with a dark, reddish smudge on the back. Thinking the earring might be important, Mary picks it up by its hook and puts it into a Ziploc bag before showing her husband. She starts to suspect that it might be related to the postcards they've been receiving. A few weeks later, on October 28th, the Lassiters are visited by a detective, whose name they can't recall, but who Joe later describes as big and bald and scary. And he starts to press them to find out if they're hiding anything they know. To assure them that they're cooperating, Joe Lassiter retrieves the earring from inside and hands it over to the detective. Then, things get quiet for a while. Meanwhile, Paul Flores has spent the summer working at Miller's Unical 76 station in Pismo Beach. If you travel on the 101, you're probably familiar with the big orange ball on the side of the freeway. Late that summer, after months of stalled search efforts, Stan and Denise Smart travel down from Stockton and pull up to the gas station. As Paul is filling up their gas tank with no idea who they are, Denise steps out of the car and introduces herself. Paul refuses to talk and retreats to a storage closet. He doesn't come back out. In November 1996, he quits the 76 station and moves to Orange, California, where word gets back to the Smart family that he's enlisted in the Navy. In an attempt to keep him from fleeing, the Smart's attorney, James Murphy, quickly files a civil suit against Paul. Since the Smart family, their attorneys, DA investigators, and sheriff's detectives all believe that Paul knows what happened to Kristen Smart, but they haven't been able to locate her body, they don't want to move forward with a criminal case too soon. Just a few months earlier, the families of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman had filed a civil suit against O.J. Simpson, which ultimately found him responsible for the deaths of the two victims hoping that they can similarly have Paul held responsible for their daughter's death. The Smarts file a wrongful death suit on November 26th. Paul was scheduled to attend the Navy Seaman Apprentice School on December 10th, but because of the civil suit, he's rejected from the Navy on December 3rd. As part of the suit, Murphy's office is able to depose witnesses. They subpoena Cheryl Anderson and Tim Davis, the other two students who walked back to campus with Paul and Kristen after Swampy Fell's party in May. 
They subpoena a handful of Paul's co-workers and his former boss from the 76 station. And they subpoena Mary and Joe Lassiter, the current tenants of Susan's rental house on East Branch Street. On January 23, 1997, the first group of deponents are questioned at James Murphy's office on Branch Street. They expect to learn a lot through the depositions, but they don't have much success. Cheryl Anderson recounts the party, where she says she didn't see or interact with Kristen, and the walk back to the dorms, which they already know about from her interviews with police. Tim Davis flat out refuses to show for his deposition. He even reportedly has some choice words for James Murphy when they speak on the phone. I'm not sure of the legality of not showing up for a deposition, but as far as I can tell, Tim Davis was never charged with contempt, and it's the last time we'll hear from Tim. Because of his refusal to show, a lot of people have quietly speculated about Tim Davis's involvement in whatever happened to Kristen that night. When Murphy asks Cheryl about that possibility, her response is, absolutely not. No question in my mind at all. But Cheryl also admits that Tim is a personal friend of hers. So it becomes another one of these issues where the truth of what happened that night is obscured by someone's refusal to talk about it. According to Murphy, the most enlightening piece of information that comes from these depositions actually comes from the Lassiter family. They mention the earring that they found in their yard and turned over to a detective, and it turns out to be the first time that the attorney or the Smart family have heard about it. The detective who collected the earring, the one who Joe referred to as big and bald and scary, never informed the Smarts about it. After the depositions conclude on January 24th, Murphy puts in a request for the Smarts to view the earring, to see if they can identify it as Kristen's. If it is, it's a huge lead. The Sheriff's Department doesn't respond in a timely manner. In fact, all of February 1997 goes by with no word. In early March, Stan and Denise Smart grow impatient, and finally drive down to Slow from Stockton. They show up at the Sheriff's Department requesting to see the earring. It's only then, after a month of being stalled, that they're told. The earring has been misplaced. The identity of the Sheriff's detective who collected and misplaced the earring has never been released, so I can't get a comment from him. Instead, I decide to look for Mary Lassiter, and I find her, living in the same town as me, just 1.9 miles away. Mary and I go back and forth for months through Facebook and phone calls. In fact, I start to wonder if she doesn't really want to talk to me, but we keep rescheduling and she never asks me to go away. By the time it happens, I think we're both a little surprised. Hi, Hi Mary. Finally. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you. How are you doing? Come on. Hi, I'm Sharon. I'm Sharon. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you too. I wasn't able to find more pictures. You found some of them? Um, just those ones I told okay. you about. But they do show the... Did you put them all in a certain order? Her pit bull Chase is locked in a back room and barks through most of my visit, but that's his job. Her mother Sharon is here too. Sharon is the one who lived on East Branch Street first, 
before Mary and her husband Joe moved into Susan's house. Here's a weird coincidence. In 1996, Sharon was living on East Branch Street, eight houses down from Susan's, and was married to a Richard Flores. S and R Flores, just like Susan and Reuben. I'm glad Sharon's here because they can both refresh each other's memories. Well, we were looking for a house and we were like, oh, it'd be so nice if we can find a house by my mom, you know? And then in 96, um, this house was up for rent and we applied and we got it quick. So we were like, oh, this is awesome. My son, because he was in grade school, my mom takes him, he goes, you know, we go to work. We all three worked at Sierra Vista Hospital. Me, my husband, and my mom. <laughs> and then, uh, so we were really excited to find a house right next to my mom. Excited until they start to get some weird mail. Postcards from Stockton that said things like, please have your son come forward to tell what he knows. Mary's son is six, and she doesn't know anyone in Stockton, so the mail clearly isn't for her. But besides that, things are great for the Lassiter family. Mary and Joe are 28 and 26, respectively, working at the same hospital together and living in a beautiful home in a nice neighborhood with a spacious yard for their kid to play in. And we have these pictures. I don't know how you want to do these. Um, Just kind of describe them for me. Okay, so this is the house. That's what it looked like when we moved in. You know, it was beautiful. It had a sunroom in the front, and these are our cars. It was a big, long driveway and a gate. There was no garage. But right over here, I wish I could have had it in the picture, but at the time I didn't know. There was a, there used to be those old trash cans before they had these, the metal ones that you'd put out on the street with the metal lids. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, that was back here that was kitty corner to the shed. They, they had it there and we're there. And they're like, um, don't use that trash can. We're going to come pick it up tomorrow or the next night or something so please don't use that we're going to come get it reuben came and picked it up what, what, what was such a big deal about a trash can you know what i mean yeah. and then um i pulled my car up his car truck wasn't there but i pulled it all the way up and opened the gates to wash my car That's this yes okay. and when when i was um washing the car you see these little things in the driveway yeah, when I was washing my done washing my rims and stuff, and I was cleaning up, I found an earring, and I was like, oh, you know, it's probably from the previous, you know, people that lived there, and so I I went to my husband. And I'm like, look, what, you know, and there was like little, it was like a red thing, and it was like a smudge, like fingerprinted look on the back, just red, like maroon, like old looking. And a sponge that it was like a half a fingerprint. And I was like, look, Joe, look at this. And I said, I'm going to put it in a baggie and in a file. And I put it with all the other things, all the hate mail I had, everything, right? And then um, how, I don't know how the cops found out about it. Oh, I think they came and interviewed my husband. I was at work. And my husband said, well, my wife found an earring too, you know. And he said, I want that earring. You need to give it to us for evidence. And so my husband, gave, it was in a baggie, and he gave it to him, you know. So, I mean, we didn't know any, what else to do, you know. And so we gave it to him. And then when we went, to, when we had to go to our depositions, which was really, really weird and odd, and I was in a room. We did, we're separate. We couldn't be together, me and my husband, with the smarts. I've never met the smarts before. 
it was so sad and horrific because I I felt like I felt like I, they thought I knew something and I didn't. You know what I mean? And um, but they had never heard about the earring, and I was like, I gave it to the cops. You know, we gave it to the cops, but they had never in detail gave them those information. That was the first time they heard of the earring, and then they're like, that was a big ordeal. It's all in my deposition and everything. I said, I gave it to them. And now they're saying, I think they said they got it, but they lost it. But it gets kind of weirder than that. Sergeant Dave Petrowski tells the Mustang Daily that the earring was never even booked into evidence because they did a, quote, visual inspection and determined that it wasn't Kristen's. I don't know what this means, because the Smart family was never given a chance to view it, and the Sheriff's Department doesn't go into any more detail, except to say that it looked like one a small child would wear. Because the earrings lost forever now, we can never know for sure. I made a note to ask Mary to draw me a picture from memory, but she's done me one better than that. Because earlier that week, she walked into the mall and bought a nearly identical pair. This is not the earring, but this is, and this is a lot smaller, but this is a clone to what it looked like, except for the turquoise was more in the teardrop shape of the earring, too. James Murphy had a, a billboard, and on that billboard, she has, she's wearing a necklace that matched. And I told my husband, I said, look, look, that is one of her earrings. Mary's right about the similarity. In the picture on the billboard in the Arroyo Grande village, and many other from the same series of senior portraits, Kristen is wearing a necklace. Hanging in the middle are three silver pendants, each with a small blue-green stone in the center. It looks exactly like the stand-in earring she's holding in front of me. I'll clarify that whenever either of us describe the earring as silver or turquoise, We're actually describing the colors as opposed to the materials. Mary doesn't think that the earring she found was an expensive one, but something that a typical teenager would wear. The sheriff's department disagreed. Sheriff Ed Williams tells the Telegram Tribune that Mary's description of the earring, quote, is not supported by the many people who saw it, but absent having the earring, we can't disprove that. I read Mary an article from the Mustang Daily, where Sergeant Petrowski also challenges her description. Dave Petrowski does not believe the silver necklace in the photograph matches the earring. He said the earring did not have any turquoise in it. Oh, that is, that is a full-blown lie. That's a full-blown lie. Turquoise in it. It says, while Murphy said last year recalls that it did include turquoise, Petrowski says it certainly was not a match, but without it, I can't prove that. Wow. Could Mary's memory of the earring be wrong? If the earring contained no turquoise, as Sergeant Petrowski says, could her image of it have changed over the past 23 years to match Kristen's necklace on the billboard? Well, I can kind of answer that one, because in a Santa Maria Times article from January 24, 1997, more than a month before the earring was even reported missing, the smarts say that Mary's description was that it contained a, quote, turquoise or turquoise colored stone so it's not her memory now the two options seem to be that either mary is lying about what the earring looked like right from the start or the sheriff's detectives were lying about what the earring looked like 
I don't know which is the case, but one important thing to factor in is that if Mary was describing the earring this way before she even knew that it had been lost, then she was risking the sheriff's department releasing photos of it to dispute her description. And that's not what happened. Instead, it disappeared. This is where conspiracy theories about this case come in. Could the sheriff's department really have misplaced something this important? Or were they intentionally covering something up? I won't speculate on this because I have no idea. But there's one piece of Mary's story that I think is even more chilling than the earring. There was a corner and then they planted like a planter, which was really weird because they laid cement and then they waited and then they laid a double cement. And my husband was like, flowers aren't gonna grow like that. You know, you need soil. And I'm getting freaked out because at night I'm hearing this in the backyard, in the master bedroom, I'm hearing this beep beep every every night at 4.20 or 4.20 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a watch like go beep 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 since the day I moved in. And me and my mom went back there and trying to put a stick like to see where we could dig. Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mom was in on it with her. Looking out the window trying to figure out exactly where it was going to go from because there was cement. So there was dirt there. There was cement. Where did you think, what area did you think it was coming from? Right from, like, where my bedroom window was. Huh. Right below her bedroom window. Yeah. And we were poking all around. It was a planter that they put in. According to the depositions of the next-door neighbors, they saw these planter boxes being cut out of the existing concrete over the summer of 1996, after Kristen Smart went missing and before the Lassiter family moved in. Again, remember when Paul told detectives that he needed to leave his interview on June 19th to clean up concrete at his mom's house? This places the date of the concrete work before June 19th. And the watch that Mary heard beeping? Sharon remembers it just as well. She occasionally spent the night with Mary when Joe was working overnight at the hospital, and both of them went into the backyard to find the source of the noise, crawling around the planter boxes on their hands and knees pushing sticks down into the soil until they hit more concrete below to try to find a watch. Mary thinks the time of the alarm, 4.20 a.m., is a marijuana reference, which was popular with college students at the time, and still is. Otherwise, 4.20 in the morning seems like a very strange time for a teenager to set their watch alarm for. But I want to play you a clip from Denise Smart, which you already heard in episode one. And she was working as a lifeguard, so she would try to get as many hours as she could at the pool. And of course, as the newbie, which hours are open? You know, the 5 and 6 a.m. hours. Well, I can't study that much because I have to go to work. I have to get up. You don't understand. I have to get up at 4.30 in the morning. It's like, reprioritize. Eeriest of all, Mary says that eventually the watch battery died and the alarms stopped going off, which implies that it had probably been placed there not long before her family moved in. After cooperating with the detectives and attorneys, the Lassiter family are evicted from the house in early March, right around the same time the earring was lost. Because they have 30 days to vacate the premises, the Lassiters give James Murphy's office permission to search the house in the backyard before they move out. Susan and Ruben, turned to a complete 360, evicted us for doing the deposition, gave us an eviction notice, 
we don't want to live there anymore anyways, you know, because of all the hate and everything. They should have told us in the beginning, you know, like if somebody passes away in a house, you're supposed to tell somebody, you know. They should have told us that information before we rented it, you know, and they were telling us, no, you can't let people come into my house. This is our house. And then um, the lawyers told me and showed me that if you are a tenant there, you have right to let anybody come there because it's your your you're paying rent there, you know what I mean? Even though somebody else owns it, you have a right to let anybody come and check and do what they want. So after they did all this and they were treating us very, you know, hatefully and stuff, but I would have done it anyways. I'm like, what do I have the right that I can do? I was asking James Murphy and um, I'm like, what can I do without getting in trouble? You know, cause it's their home, but I run it there. They said, well, you are there, you can do whatever they want. And I had people asking me to let them do x-ray. Mm-hmm. I let them do that. I let him do whatever. I, I said, you guys can do whatever you want to do while I'm here that's legal. I just don't want to get in trouble. So I let them do it all. I think they even brought dogs. On March 3rd, 1997, James Murphy's office organizes a search of the East Branch Street house with Carta cadaver dogs and a geologist. The dogs search the attic and a crawl space underneath the home, but don't find anything. They do react, though, to the corner of the backyard where the aluminum garbage can used to be, the one that the Lassiters were asked not to use and that Reuben was insistent about picking up right before Mary found the earring. The Flores's attorney dismisses this and says that dogs typically react when they sniff trash cans. But my understanding is that these dogs are trained to sniff out human-specific chemicals because they're often searching through garbage or landfills to find human remains. Regardless, their search turns up nothing. But the geologist does a ground-penetrating radar sweep of the backyard, and in his interview with police, he says he found some anomalies underneath the concrete on the west side of the yard, but was 85 to 90% sure it was natural and not man-made. However, he tells police he harbors a slight doubt because this is the first search he's ever done for a human body, and he didn't have the proper equipment for it. Also, he says he was troubled by pieces of broken concrete in the yard, which he was told were left over from work Paul and Ruben Flores had done the previous summer, and by stains on the west side of the house, which indicated that dirt had been piled up against it for a period of time, and splatters of dirt on the fence. Mary Lassiter has never been able to shake the thought that Kristen's body could have been in that backyard at some point. If she was there, I don't think she's there now. I believe that they probably moved her. Do you feel like she was there at the time that you were living? Yes. I definitely do. The Lassiters move out in April of 1997, and rather than finding new tenants or selling the house, Susan Flores moves into it herself. The address and pictures of the house have been printed in newspapers, and rumors start to circulate throughout the community, with people driving by, taking pictures, honking their horns, knocking on the door, and sending her mail. Still, it's not enough to get Susan to move anywhere else. The Smart family takes a different approach. Denise Smart carefully assembles and packages a collage with pictures of Kristen from birth through adulthood, with a desperate plea for the Flores family to tell police what they know. Denise writes, As one mother to another, I hope you can empathize with my sense of loss. The hardest part is not knowing. 
Not being able to share in her future is one thing, but not being able to give her one last celebration of love and laying her to rest in the presence of her family and friends is still another. Please help us. Susan Flores returns the package a week later with a note. If I wanted to see pictures of your daughter, I would have asked for them. Look at them yourself. So the sheriff's department didn't know that Susan was living in the Branch Street house in May of 1996 when Kristen went missing. So they never filed a warrant to search that house the way they did Ruben's. They didn't do any forensics at either house. They didn't ask to search any of the Flores family's vehicles. And they lost a potential piece of evidence, which even appeared to have something resembling blood on it. But still, the sheriff's biggest mistake, in my opinion, doesn't come until May of 1997, just before the one-year anniversary of Kristen's disappearance. Attorneys have not been able to depose Paul Flores or his parents yet, but on May 23rd, Sheriff Ed Williams tells the San Luis Obispo Telegram Tribune, quote, We need Paul Flores to tell us what happened to Kristen Smart. The fact of the matter is, we have very qualified detectives who have conducted well over a hundred interviews, and everything leads to Mr. Flores. There are no other suspects. So absent something from Mr. Flores, I don't see us completing this case. It's a premature and resigned admission. And when Paul Flores is finally deposed on November 14, 1997, he takes the sheriff's advice. Where did you attend high school? On the advice of my attorney, I face to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. What is the name of your father? On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. What is your mother's name? On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. What is your sister's name? On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Does your mother have a sister? On the advice of my attorney, his attorney, Melvin Delamont, has brought a printed sheet of paper for Flores to read from. Each time Murphy asks a new question, Delamont taps the paper in front of Paul. On the advice of my attorney, I refuse to answer that question based on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. For the record, I would indicate that the witness is repeatedly looking at and having his attention directed by Mr. Delamont to an eight and a half uh, inch by 11 inch piece of white paper with some black lettering which is upside down and I can't read it from here but I think I know what it says because the witness has read it into the record on a number of occasions I would like that I would ask that a copy of that document that the witness has been reviewing be attached as an exhibit to this deposition and incorporated into the record I think probably the best way to do this, uh, Mr. Delamont, I'm not trying to be disrespectful of your position. I uh, know um, of you and your reputation in our legal community. Uh, nonetheless, I believe that the position that you are taking is clearly erroneous. I believe that it uh, is a violation of the rules of civil proceedings. I know that you have done some civil work, but your instruction to your client 
uh, to refuse to answer even the most simple and basic question, including questions that have absolutely no tendency in fact or law to incriminate him, is, I believe, misplaced. Nonetheless, uh, if it is your position that Mr. Flores is not going to answer questions about his employment, his uh, matriculation into Cal Poly, who his friends are, his relationship with his family members, um, things that occurred in his life prior to the um, uh, date of the disappearance of Kristen Smart, vehicles that were available to him to use, things of that sort. Um, perhaps I can cut to the chase and simply make a record as to the types of questions that I would be asked, and we can just have the blanket invocation. I get your uh, position on that on the record, so when I go to a reviewing court, I have a clear and fair record. As I indicated, he plans to answer that he will invoke the Fifth Amendment on all your questions. If you have questions to direct to my client, go ahead and ask questions. Save the speeches for later. Just ask the question. Okay, well, Mr. Delamont, it's not a speech. It's a civil proceeding. If you're not going to ask uh, questions, we'll discontinue the deposition leave. No, if you're no, here no, to no, take a deposition, no. if you want to ask questions, go ahead. I'm going to make a record of my position in this case, Mr. Delamont. You can make the record some other time. Ask the questions. That's what a deposition is for. Okay. Not to make a speech. You can make a speech to the court. You can do it in writing. You can do it orally. Ask the questions. We're here to answer the questions. We're required to do so. Ask the questions or we'll leave. It goes on like this for the entire tape. In May of 96, were you a student at Cal Poly? On the advice of my attorney. Paul refuses to answer a single question. It's pretty much the nail in the coffin for the case. For a while, at least. 1998 moves by slowly, without any significant new developments. Denise Smart describes the investigation as a case without a lead agency. The Sheriff's Department says publicly that they're merely assisting Cal Poly while Cal Poly says the case has been turned over completely to the sheriff. In July, Sheriff Ed Williams announces that he's leaving his position in August to take a new job with the State Board of Prison Terms, so the title of sheriff is passed off to a chief deputy until a new election can be held in November. It is objectively a mess. Even the governor of California agrees. On August 11, 1998, Governor Pete Wilson signs the Kristen Smart Campus Safety Act into law, which requires campus police to involve law enforcement in their investigations right from the start to avoid a situation like this from happening again. And it's well-timed, because on November 13, 1998, another Cal Poly student goes missing. Rachel Newhouse is last seen leaving Tortilla Flats Restaurant at 1051 Napomo Street to walk back to her house on Goethe Street. San Luis Obispo Police Department Captain Bart Topham's comments to Santa Maria Times are impossible not to read as a direct reaction to the way that Kristen's case was investigated. Quote, from early on, we jumped all over this. That is the only way to put it. We were satisfied early on that Newhouse was not following her usual pattern. It was not normal. Rachel's case is never treated as a runaway. The police department acts quickly, and within a day, a trail of Rachel's blood is found on the Jennifer Street Bridge, a large structure that leads pedestrians over the top of the Amtrak station and into Rachel's neighborhood. 
San Luis Obispo goes wild with murmurs that the two disappearances are connected. College girls stop walking by themselves at night, and the normally quiet town starts to buzz with nervous energy. It erupts into full-blown panic when a third college student, Andrea Crawford, goes missing from her duplex in the railroad district, a half mile away from where Rachel Newhouse's blood was found. Rumors start to spread that a serial killer is on the loose in San Luis Obispo, but the town doesn't have to speculate for long. Because a month after Andrea's disappearance, the killer confesses. Rex Allen Krebs, a convicted rapist, says he abducted and murdered Rachel Newhouse and Andrea Crawford, and both bodies are recovered from near his secluded Davis Canyon home. While there are parallels between all three cases, Kristen's is the outlier. Her body isn't found, and Krebs was in prison for rape at the time of her disappearance. Kristen wasn't one of his victims. It's strange to say that as much of a nightmare as the families of Newhouse and Crawford have been through, the Smart family are envious of one thing that they have. Elijah, Answers. Let's not lose sight of Paul Flores. After being denied by the Navy in late 1996, he moved in with his sister and her husband in an apartment in Irvine and got a job at Blockbuster. Until the video rental store got a package in the mail with news clippings about Paul's connection to the disappearance of a missing girl, and he was fired. In 1997, he's hired as part of the inaugural crew of an Outback Steakhouse and starts working in the kitchen late that summer. Months ago, one of his former co-workers stumbled upon my Instagram before I'd even put out my first episode. I recognize her name from my research and reach out to her, but she's a little spooked and says she's not interested in telling her story on the podcast. Until a few months later, when her husband tells her that it could be therapeutic to talk about that time in her life. She doesn't want to use her real name, so I'll call her Melinda. So that was just kind of my early party period, just kind of working in restaurants and not really having a whole lot of plans, just kind of saving up some money and uh, being a kid, you know. <laughs> the restaurant had just opened, so we were on the opening team. He was in the kitchen and I was serving, so that's how I met him. He just seemed, uh, to me personally, I just I kind of felt sorry for him because he was kind of a loner. If you will, I mean, that's kind of the impression I got. He had a really bad stuttering problem. He had a hard time communicating, but like he was, he just seemed genuine at the time, you know, just seemed like he was just kind of a nice, humble guy. And so, yeah, we would, we would hang out after work every once in a while, like just have a drink and talk about the day or whatever. And he just, it seemed very innocent, kind of like, yeah, I just kind of feel sorry for him. Just, you know what I mean? It's hard to describe, but it just, it, that, time it was just like oh he's working in the kitchen doesn't have a lot of friends and he didn't have a license and I guess I knew he had had a couple DUIs but I didn't know if I knew that at the time or if I found that out later or whatever but so I would give him rides home and you know we'd go out with friends drinking or whatever I would always take him home and I just felt bad for him we started hanging out more like January of 98 with friends and stuff and he didn't have a license that whole time and then he moved to an apartment which was right across the street from where we worked at the time, I was naive and, and just turned 21. So it was like, oh, we're all drinking and partying. And, and I didn't really know the, the scope of things. But whenever 
we did go out, he seemed to go from zero to 60, which either he had a low tolerance or he had been drinking prior to us going out. The problem was the fact that whenever he did drink a lot is when he started getting really weird. For one, he would stop stuttering when he drank a lot. So at the time I was thinking, well, maybe that's his insecurity. So he would drink a lot to kind of not stutter, but he would get very uh, affectionate, but not in a good way, you know, more of a like, nowadays it'd be considered just like way out of line, you know? And back in those days, it still was out of line, but in that day and age working in restaurants, you're kind of like goofing around with people and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, okay. He's just giving me a hug, All right, back off, dude. He would constantly talk about how he was a virgin, and I thought that was kind of odd. But like, okay, thank you for sharing that information. It was just like, oh, okay, that guy's weird, whatever, you know. So like I said, I would be the designated driver, not necessarily not drinking, but because of the fact that he always needed a ride home, and we were hanging out with uh, just a group of guys, and, and myself, basically, we were all friends. And the other guys would be like, all right, we're taking off. You you know, you know, can deal with them. And I was like, oh, great. Thanks, guys. I, I get to deal with drunk Paul. And it was always kind of like the, I'd roll my eyes like, all right, but I want people to make, I want to make sure people get home safe. I don't want to just say, oh, forget you, you know. Usually, the couple times I would take him home and he would just like try to like hit on me in the car and he was drunk, you know, and I'd just say, get out, come on. I'd try to be nice about it because it was just like, yeah, I treat, it, I treat drunk people like toddlers because you just kind of go, okay, you know, all right, it's all good. Come on, I'm not going to be mad because it kind of sets them off. You never know. So a couple times I would take him home and he would just, oh, come on, just give me a kiss, just give me a kiss. And he would try to like reach, you know, like reach in for a kiss. I'd be like, no, just get out of the car. I just want to make sure you're getting home safe. And then this one particular night, he just would not stop. And he wouldn't get out of my car. And he wasn't physically touching me or doing anything necessarily, but, um, but he just kept saying, okay, if you give me a kiss, I'll go inside. If you give me a kiss, if you just give me one kiss. And I'm like, no, no, Paul, we're friends. I'm not doing that, you know? And, and it was just creepy. It got to the point where I was like, okay, what can I do to get you into the house besides physical anything, you know? And finally I said, if I walk you to your door, will you please just go in the house? So this is, we're now at 3 a.m. And finally he's like, okay. And so I walk him up to his sister's apartment and it's the second story and we get up there and somehow and he opened the door and all of a sudden he just like picked me up carried me inside and I, at this point like I said I had no reason to be afraid of him it was just like oh my gosh here he goes again and turned around he shut the apartment door and locked it and there was no lights on in there and I was like Paul you better turn some lights on in here right now and I'd never been in there before so I didn't know where the switches were and he didn't for, it was like, there was a good pause, but it was enough for me to go, okay, this is, this is really weird. This is not normal, even for him. So I said, you better turn some lights on right now and let me out or I'm going to scream. Apparently his sister was home. I, I don't know. So like I said, it was 3 a.m. So I was assuming she was asleep. And so he reluctantly, he turned the lights on and then he tried to get me to go into his bedroom. I was like, no, I'm leaving right now. I told you I would walk you up here. Make sure you were safe and I'm out of here. He's like, oh, just come into my room. I want to show you my liquor bottle collection or something like that. Mini, mini bottles. And I'm like, um, no, I'm flat out not going into your room. You know, let me out of here. So eventually he unlocked you know, the apartment door and, and I left. And it was just so strange because I was like, okay, that really, that was really uncomfortable. Like I said, he would get drunk and do weird things, but I would just laugh it off. But this one was like, this was spooky. And then I left and... It's funny because I was looking, you know, I was telling you, I was reading my old 
journaled. I said, I got home at 3.30. Paul promised not to touch me anymore. And I don't remember, but it made it, for reading that, it made it sound like he had touched me before. It's really strange how I have a really creepy good memory, and I don't remember any touching. But I did write that, so I don't know. In February of 1998, Melinda started dating one of their other co-workers from Outback. And Paul and her new boyfriend decided to move in together. Just two months later, 2020 would air a special about the Kristen Smart case, which prominently featured recent video of Paul in front of the apartment complex where her boyfriend was living with him. Yeah, somewhere around February, March of 98 is when they moved into an apartment together, just the two of them. I don't remember a particular reason for it necessarily, just the fact that they had both we're looking for something at the same time, and they found one apartment across the street from our work. Somebody said that there's going to be a special about it, this case that he was involved with, that he was a suspect, and we're all kind of like, what? And I don't remember, now that I know all the details, of course, it's easy to, to say. I don't remember at the time how much details were given to us, but I did know that it was going to air. So we were at my parents' house, and we were watching the show, and we were just, like, mind-blown. Just, you know, a couple months previous, where he, you know, locked the door behind us in his apartment. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, I could totally see this happening. That was my first reaction was, yep. Like, everyone goes, oh my gosh, this person would ever do such a thing. I can't believe it. It was like, oh, makes a lot of sense now. They were so creeped out by the 2020 episode that her boyfriend didn't want to go home to his apartment that night where Paul was. In fact, he took the opportunity to move into Melinda's apartment so he wouldn't have to be alone with Paul again. Paul was fired from Outback Steakhouse around the same time, and investigators came down to Irvine to interview his co-workers. Melinda stopped hanging out with him as much, but still had to visit his apartment a few times, as her boyfriend moved his stuff out to move in with her. When I did see him, he would not, he would not make eye contact, you know, at all, for good reason. You know, we were in there doing stuff, and he was there, but he was just very, very withdrawn. Wouldn't say anything, wouldn't look at me. But I do remember a few times being over there, there would be messages from Paul's mom on the answer machine. Just like, Paul, I need to talk to you. How can you haven't called us? You know, we really need to talk. Why isn't he calling his mom? Melinda and her boyfriend weren't together for long, and eventually he moved out, and Melinda got a job at another restaurant five miles south. Paul applied there too and didn't get hired, but that didn't stop him from hanging outside. He wasn't hired, but he kept cruising by every time I would work he would just circle the place on his bike and just kind of look in the windows what are you doing other than just stalking me or you know watching me I don't know very strange and remember all the stories from the last episode about Paul just randomly showing up places he wasn't invited to he would appear at random places um, and I say plural because I know it happened more than once but I couldn't tell you where the first one was, but when my uh, my husband, well, my, he was my boyfriend at the time, but in 99, we were hanging out at a bar in Costa Mesa, and Paul shows up, hey, what's going on? Like, we see him all the time. And he just kind of stood there, and I introduced him to, you know, my husband, and it was just kind of like, okay. And that's the last time Melinda ever saw him. But her story is familiar, and it helps to establish that Paul Flores, before and after Kristen's disappearance, was crossing boundaries with women, making them uncomfortable, cornering them when he got them alone, and stalking them long after they made it clear 
that he was not welcome. Back up on the Central Coast, Sheriff Patrick Hedges has inherited the Kristen Smart case. And with some outside help from the FBI, things are starting to pick up momentum again. In early 1999, the FBI interviews over a thousand former Cal Poly students who were attending the college when Kristen disappeared. They comb the campus again and even sift through dirt under the Student Academic Services Building after following up on a tip. No new evidence is found. But as the year 2000 rolls around, the FBI and the Sheriff's Department start to go back over the details they've gathered so far, and they see a pretty strong lead. A lead from the first year of the investigation, which has already been checked out, but they think it's still compelling enough to compile into a search warrant affidavit, which reads, reasonable cause exists to believe that Kristen Smart's body is buried in the backyard of Susan Flores's home on East Branch Street. Next time. Listening to Your Own Backyard, Episode 3 Their Own Backyard. Okay, now we're gonna listen to Episode 4. This one's called Son of Sam. So, in this episode description, it says, A man from North Carolina vows to keep the Flores family on their toes and accidentally finds a new way to get their backyard searched in the process so i'm gonna get that set up right now a note from the smart family the statute of limitations in this case has expired on everything except murder anyone who comes forward with information will not be charged with any crime At 8 a.m. on June 19, 2000, a team of sheriff's investigators knocks on the front door of Susan Flores' East Branch Street home. With them is a group of FBI evidence response team members and a search warrant drafted by an FBI special agent. The 22-page affidavit for the warrant lays out in detail several reasons for focusing their search at this house. First, Paul Flores admits to being the last person with Kristen Smart on the night she disappeared. Then, the stories that Paul told his roommate and the police about the walk back to the dorms didn't match up. He had a black eye and scratches on his hands and knees the same weekend that Kristen disappeared and told three different stories about how he got them. He even admitted to lying to police about the first story so he wouldn't sound like a klutz. Then, Carta cadaver dogs alerted to the mattress, telephone, and wastebasket in Paul's Santa Lucia Hall dorm room for the scent of human decomposition. Through all of the three-story South Mountain residence halls, which each house about 600 students, Paul's was the only one that the dogs alerted on. Then, Susan Flores's next-door neighbors deposed that they saw Paul and Reuben doing construction work in Susan's backyard, not long after Kristen went missing, and afterwards, said that they saw new latticework and a series of planter boxes which had been cut out of the existing cement in the backyard. 
After Susan rented the house out to the Lassiter family that fall, Joe Lassiter deposed that one of those planter boxes measured six feet in length and three feet in width. And he says he couldn't get flowers to grow in it because after six inches of soil, he hit a second layer of cement. The warrant lists the earring the Lassiters found and the dark reddish smudge on it, as well as the cadaver dogs who reacted to the spot where Reuben's garbage can was kept. Since that last search in March of 1997, a garage has been constructed over the top of this area. A garage that seems, to me, unnecessary. It doesn't house any cars that I know of, and it blocks access to the backyard from the driveway. The warrant also includes the findings of the ground-penetrating radar search in 1997, in which the geologist said he found anomalies under the concrete and saw evidence that dirt had been piled up alongside the west side of the house for a period of time and broken pieces of cement, which he was told were left by Ruben and Paul Flores in the summer of 1996. In conclusion, the affidavit reads, quote, Kristen Smart is deceased and either died in Paul Flores's dormitory room or was placed there for an unknown period of time. Based on the information in this affidavit, Paul Flores is responsible for or has direct knowledge of Kristen Smart's disappearance and or death. Reasonable cause exists to believe that Kristen Smart's body is buried in the backyard of Susan Flores's home on East Branch Street. I've only amended that quote to leave out the actual house number. Armed with the warrant, investigators spend nine hours at the house where Susan now lives with her 90-year-old grandmother and her boyfriend, Mike McConville, her former real estate partner at Prudential Hunter. The evidence response team searches a crawl space under the front porch which is accessible from the side of the house, and the large attic, which is spacious enough to walk around in. The warrant gives them permission to search all rooms and buildings, outbuildings, garages, yard areas, trash containers, storage areas, and containers used in connection with or within the curtilage of said premises and buildings for the following property. One, the remains of Kristen Smart's body, and two, clothing and personal property of Kristen Smart. At 5 p.m., they wrap up the search. Because they're using more advanced ground-penetrating radar than the 1997 search, they determine that it's not necessary to dig up the concrete. But the GPR results are ultimately inconclusive, and the moment they leave the property, the search warrant expires and the property can never be searched again without a brand new reasonable cause. It's the start of a second nightmare for the Smart family. On the surface, at least, law enforcement seems to have exhausted their leads, and with no new developments to report, the rest of the year 2000 passes without any mention of Kristen Smart in local newspapers. It seems like the community is starting to move on with their lives and forget about their daughter. Sometimes, help can come from the most unlikely candidate, and the candidate is about to pack up his van with everything he owns and drive 2,561 miles across the country to make sure that nobody forgets about Kristen Smart, especially not the Flores family.
After the second search of Susan Flores's East Branch Street house, things slow down for a while. In May of 2001, the Smart family hosts a celebration of life for Kristen at St. John's Lutheran Church in Arroyo Grande. A reception follows at the Shorecliffe Lodge in Pismo, which is attended by over a hundred friends and family members, dressed in Hawaiian attire and sharing memories of a girl who loved the ocean and traveling the world. The Smarts release five doves for the five years that Kristen has been missing. The focus is on Kristen Smart as a person, rather than Kristen Smart as an unsolved case. But Sheriff Patrick Hedges speaks last and assures the audience that they won't give up on solving it. When I hear stories like this, it frustrates me to no end that I'm in the future with the knowledge that Hedges will be the second sheriff to retire without closing the case. A baby born on the day of Kristen's celebration of life in 2001 would have headed off to college this fall. It's 8.52 here in New York. I'm Brian Gumbel. We understand that there has been a plane crash on the uh, southern tip of Manhattan. You're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We don't know anything more than that. We don't know if it was a commercial aircraft. We, we heard it, because and, and, I was just like standing there pretty much looking out the window. I didn't see what caused it or if there was an impact. So you have no idea right, right oh, now? Oh, there's another one. Another plane just hit. <gasps> Right. Oh, my gosh. Another plane has just hit. It hit another building. Flew right into the middle of it. Explosion. Four months later, the entire world watches on television as the twin towers of the World Trade Center collapse and disappear from the lower Manhattan skyline. In Charlotte, North Carolina, a six-foot, five-inch healthcare supplies delivery driver named Dennis Mann is watching the broadcast on a small black-and-white TV in his empty apartment. Everything he owns is in the back of his delivery van. He's about to head to San Luis Obispo with the blessing of his employer to look for Kristen Smart. After sitting to absorb the shock of what's just happened in New York, he unplugs his TV and sets out across the country. Dennis isn't an investigator. He's not in law enforcement or forensics. He's not even a psychic. Dennis is... Just Dennis. Hola. I had a long day of travel and I got home. I said, oh man, I need to sleep some. So I just woke up like a half hour ago. <laughs> Dennis's interest started with another case. A girl from his hometown named Kristen Modafferi, who moved to San Francisco for college, where she disappeared on June 23rd, 1997. Dennis looked up her parents in the Charlotte phone book and asked their permission to go to California to look for her. At the time, he had no investigative experience. I always wanted to do something big in my life. I was an independent contractor for Apria Healthcare. They would deliver hospital beds and oxygen tanks to their patients. But it was so busy, they just said, Dennis, just show up here every single morning. And I ended up working for them for a couple of years, just making uh, deliveries. And then when Kristen Montaferi was abducted, I wanted to go out and look for her in San Francisco. The manager of Apria, his name was Kevin Bacon, he... He said, Dennis, go find that girl, and when you come back, you have your job day one, so you just go and find that girl. I still have my job waiting for me. After spending some time in San Francisco and forming a relationship with the Modafferi family, Kristen's mother, Debbie, introduced Dennis to Denise Smart, 
after they appeared together on an episode of Sally Jesse Raphael about their missing daughters. Dennis quickly got involved in both cases, and in May 1998, he traveled down to Irvine to try to talk to Paul Flores. Paul's sister, Irma Linda, answered the door and told Dennis to get off of the property. But instead, Dennis sat at the front door, reading a paperback book. Three minutes later, I see this kid riding a bicycle, and it was Paul. I said, uh, you're Paul, right? He goes, yeah. He goes, hi, I'm Dennis. And I, he was very nice to me and shook my hand. And as soon as he did that, Irma Linda had opened the door again and grabbed Paul and said, get in there, Paul. And she yanked him in the house and she slammed the, the door again. And then about 10 minutes later, the cops were there and they, they said I had to leave the property. But that was my very first thing I did for the smarts. Now three years have passed and Dennis has decided to make a serious effort to get answers out of the Flores family. It was a day after 9-11 and I'm driving cross country in an unmarked 16-foot white van. It was on his last leg and it actually broke down. He buys a 1991 Buick Century to finish the trip, which rumbles and groans when he makes turns. I was in uh, Utah, and I bought another car in, uh, in Utah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Buick. Yeah, how did you know that? When he gets to San Luis Obispo a week later, he applies for a job at a Domino's on Foothill Boulevard. It's staffed by a handful of Cal Poly students and a 41-year-old dentist who asks his coworkers on his first shift, Hey, you guys know about Kristen Smart? And not only that, every time I had a delivery to the dorms, it wasn't only pizza delivery, I was also asking the kids if they had heard anything about Kristen Smart. As soon as he settled in, he drives his Buick to Arroyo Grande on October 25th, 2001, and pulls up to Susan Flores' East Branch Street house for the first time. This is naive, but you know I didn't have any contact with the Flores before this. My initial thought was to go knock on the door and sit down and see if I could just talk to him. He knocks on the door, and Susan's boyfriend, Mike McConville, answers. Mike answered the door, and I said, Hi, uh, my name is Dennis Mann. I wonder if I could talk to you about uh, Kristen. He goes, Let me see some ID. And so at the time, I had just gotten a new driver's license in Charlotte. And so I gave Mike my old one. He goes, Can I make a copy of this? I said, Sure. He goes, I'll be right back. And so he was gone for about five minutes, and he came back, gave my license back, said, we don't want to talk to you, and he closed the door. The denial isn't enough to dissuade Dennis, and he goes back five days later. This time, Susan is home, and she calls the Arroyo Grande Police Department. Two officers show up and ask Dennis to leave. While they're standing on the sidewalk next to Dennis's car, Ruben Flores shows up and goes into Susan's house. He comes out a minute later holding a camera and starts to take pictures of Dennis. Dennis asks the officer to stop Reuben, but he's told that what Reuben is doing is not illegal because they're standing on a public street. This is the exact moment that an idea starts to form for Dennis. As long as he remains on public property, he can take pictures of the Flores family too. And he does. Every day he parks at the curb in front of Susan Flores' house and waits to get a good picture of her. I would build a website in my car and then I would drive up to San Luis Obispo to the internet cafe up there on Foothill Boulevard. This one you had to plug the uh, computer with the, uh, the cable <laughs> into the wall there. And then, and then uh, I would upload to the server. He launches a website, which he calls sonofsusan.com. I named it Son of Susan because it was Susan Flores. Her son was Paul. And the son of Sam was that famous uh, murderer in New York. So it was a takeoff of that. And he starts to write a book with the same title, 
which he posts on the website one chapter at a time. Right in the middle of a paragraph, he'll insert a parenthetical that breaks the fourth wall. I've been here for an hour so far, and no police cars, which is a bit surprising. Arroyo Grande police just showed up again. The officer was very sympathetic, but did ask that I consider the wisdom of sitting right in front of the Flores residence. I told him I plan on staying right here, right square in front of their home. I will be here a lot in the coming months. Dennis also travels down to Orange, California over Thanksgiving, and hands out flyers in the neighborhood where Paul is now living with his sister and her husband, to inform neighbors that Paul is a person of interest in the disappearance of a girl. The Flores family and their attorneys call it harassment. It raises some interesting questions about vigilantism. Where is the line? If you're not actually taking the law into your own hands, but simply annoying people, is it okay to do? What if the agency who's supposed to be investigating the family is moving very slowly, losing potential evidence, and publicly tipping off the only suspect that as long as he refuses to talk, he'll never be tried? Then is it okay to bother his family? I don't know the right answer, and I think my mind would change based on whether I was the parent of the missing person or the parent of the person who was accused of knowing what happened to her. But Susan Flores finally has enough. On April 27, 2002, she calls the police on Dennis again. When an officer arrives, Susan comes out to talk to him, and because she's in public, Dennis starts to take photos of her, the same way Reuben did to him months earlier. Susan rages and tackles Dennis's 6'5", 250-pound frame to the ground. She pushed him aside. She jumped on me, so I went right down to the ground, you know. And he quickly had her up and handcuffed her for assault. So I took photographs of Sergeant Sanchez handcuffing Susan Flores. They're posted on his website hours later. But while the cops are talking to each other across the street, Dennis has one last exchange with Susan. And so they had her in the back seat. They didn't cuff her arms behind her. She had her hands cuffed in her lap, basically. And they had her in the back seat, and the window was open. And that's when Susan, she reached her hands up out the window and, like, pointed at me and went, pow. And then she goes, yeah, Paul killed Kristen, and he also killed that Matafini girl, too. She didn't know how to pronounce Matafari, so she said Matafini. It's confirmation that the Floreses are paying close attention to Dennis's website. In May of 2002, Paul Flores is sentenced to eight months in jail for violating his probation by drinking alcohol in a bar in Costa Mesa. The terms of his probation require him to abstain from alcohol for three years now that he's been pulled over for drunk driving at least three times since 1996. He's set to begin serving his term on May 31st, so Dennis shows up at the Santa Barbara County Jail with his camera to get more pictures for sonofsusan.com and to hand out flyers to other prisoners. When he's informed by a guard that Paul checked himself in one day early, specifically to avoid Dennis. So the website is working. In July 2002, Susan Flores finally files a restraining order against Dennis. The declaration reads, quote, Defendant Dennis Mann is an individual who has taken a personal interest in the disappearance of Kristen Smart and has conducted a self-styled investigation into the matter, and has done so with increasing aggressiveness and hostility. As is evident by his efforts and a website he maintains, the defendant is simply consumed with his investigation, notwithstanding the fact that he apparently has no official capacity. The defendant reportedly a. 
bears no relationship with the family of Kristen Smart, never knew her, and in fact lived 3,000 miles away from San Luis Obispo and the Smart family at the time of the disappearance. B works for no law enforcement agency, and C possesses no license, education, nor specialized training to conduct investigations. The defendant is a physically imposing person. His persistent appearances in the lives of my family members and myself, his attempts to incite physical action against us, either involving others or himself, and his threats of continued harassment and escalating efforts in that regard, has placed us in a state of vigilance and created great distress in our personal lives. A month later, a judge orders Dennis to stay 50 yards away from Susan Flores, Paul, Ruben, Susan's boyfriend Mike McConville, Paul's sister Irma Linda, and her husband. Undeterred, Dennis moves his campaign north to the Cal Poly campus where he marches with a huge sign that reads, Dig up Susan Flores's yard and a notebook to collect signatures for a petition. Local news doesn't know what to make of him. He's referred to as an amateur sleuth and a strange Samaritan in articles. Reporters can't seem to make sense of Dennis, with one piece in the Slow Tribune describing him as crazy and bizarre, and he's regarded with strong suspicion because he hasn't asked the smarts for any money, and no one can figure out why he's doing this all in the name of a girl he never even knew. His methods are certainly unorthodox, hosting treasure hunts for buried cash and drawings that use the name of Paul's gas station co-workers, but it's effective. His Facebook group, Find Kristen Smart, currently has 9,600 members who still discuss the case regularly. Dennis becomes a thorn in the sheriff's department's side too, particularly Steve Boltz, who is the lead detective on the case and will later be named undersheriff. When Dennis questions Boltz about why Susan Flores' backyard wasn't dug up in 2000 to fulfill the warrant, Boltz apparently tells him that investigators took a vote. And while he voted in favor of a dig, the majority decided that digging up the concrete would be too costly. I say apparently because once Dennis shares this information on sonofsusan.com, Boltz denies ever having said it. So you can decide who you believe. Boltz claims that the search warrant didn't authorize a dig, and the vote taken was whether or not to apply for a second warrant to do so. So Dennis emails the FBI agent who wrote the warrant, and the agent's response, which Dennis proudly displays on his website to this day, reads, quote, The first warrant authorized a dig. I know this because I provided most of the info for the warrant. I forced the warrant on a skeptical police force. I was told the officers present did not want to pay for repairs in case the search turned up nothing. That was a lost opportunity. That was a lost opportunity. Meanwhile, for every year that passes without the case being closed, Paul Flores is continuing to live a fairly normal life and meeting women in Southern California who have no idea who he is. One woman who I spoke to recently even dated Paul for a few years and might be the only real girlfriend he's ever had. Looking back now, she feels like all of the signs were right in front of her, and on more than one occasion, that Paul was on the verge of confessing something big. Um, I dated Paul early in my 20s. He seemed like a nice person in the beginning. There was something always odd about him and his family. There was always lots of, lots of secrets. He didn't have very many friends. 
he drank too much. He was physically and verbally abusive. Just not somebody you want to be around. His parents were paying all his bills. His dad said, so this is the girl that you're spending all your money on and paying for dinners? Why don't you make her pay? And that was the first time I met his dad. Um, there was times where he was obviously intoxicated and he very often would tell me he had something he had to say, but he was so intoxicated that I couldn't really, never got an answer. It's, he always said he had something to tell me. I thought it was like he was being unfaithful. I was just like, what do you have to tell me? And then he would always like just pass out and never tell me. There's a couple instances when he was drinking and stuff, like we were horse playing once and then he like took it to the next level and he had like a butter knife and he like held it to my neck and I was screaming and my roommate actually kicked down the door to make him stop. And seeing and experiencing the things that I experienced, I very much think he is capable of it. He's a liar, he's an alcoholic. I know he never did it in front of me or in the presence of me, but I knew in the past there might have been drugs. Drugs and alcohol mixed together, I absolutely think something happened and he was a very big part of it. From experience, there was many incidents where he got intoxicated around family and friends and would just exhibit really odd behavior. He was really inappropriate with a lot of my friends and family when intoxicated. Whether somebody helped them or not, I don't know. I think maybe the parents do play a part in it. They are pretty active in his life. They pay for everything for him. But I do think that the parents know something and, and they're very close-lipped with the information that they do have. They don't let anybody in. We went to his mom's house and we walked around the neighborhood. I even remember saying, oh, why did someone put this huge billboard right next to your mom's house? The Kristen Smart one. And I, I remember that really, like, who would do that? That's so rude. And I never knew anything until afterwards, which I didn't know the story, but she said that her backyard got dug up because they were remodeling. They never mentioned it was because of a police investigation, but that was a very short visit. It was not comfortable at all. When we broke up, I had got my first laptop on my own and I was really excited and I Googled everything and I started Googling all my exes and when I Googled his name, all the Kristen Smart stuff came up and kind of everything fell into place and made sense. And when I called my family and told them they or in agreement with me that something was always like odd about him and off but they respected me enough never to say anything in front of me but they could see the thing the, the pieces lining up it kind of made sense even when we broke up he had called me obviously he was either drinking or had something to tell me he was crying but I heard his mom in the background tell him to hang up the phone. Pa, hang up that phone. So I never found out what it was that he had to tell me. In 2005, 
The Central Coast plays host to one of the biggest media trials in history. When Michael Jackson is charged with molesting a minor, and the proceedings are held at the Santa Barbara County Superior Court in Santa Maria. Cameras are on every street corner, and Dennis Mann is there for it, with a huge banner, now held up by two symbolic shovels, which reads, Dig up Susan Flores's yard. I have to stay 50 yards away, no problem. I'll just stay 60 yards away. So I had a big banner, big signs that dig up Susan Flores's yard. I was walking around town, and I made sure that I was more than 50 yards away, and uh, I got arrested anyway. More than once. He's arrested in February after he walks by the real estate office where Susan is working part-time, which he claims not to know. And then he spends 20 days in jail that May, during the nine-year anniversary of Kristen's disappearance. Dennis is a pest, but a pest with a point. Years are passing, and the Smart family still doesn't know where their daughter is. Paul Flores hasn't talked, and this is just 2005. If you're here in 2019 with me, you know that 14 years later, neither of those things have changed. So what can we as concerned citizens do? Are we supposed to sit idly by as law enforcement assures us that they're actively working on this case, even as 2002, 2003, 2004, 2005 and beyond pass without a resolution? I don't know, but it doesn't sit well with Dennis Mann. Good evening, man. Good evening, City Council. My name is Dennis Mann. I'm from uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. So I'm a little far away from home tonight. And I'm here representing the family interests of uh, Kristen Smart. And I assume that everybody here is very familiar with her. Uh, for those of you who do not know who Kristen Smart was, she was a Cal Poly freshman in 1996. And on the evening of May 25th, 1996, she disappeared. And uh, six years later, the San Luis Obispo Court declared Kristen legally deceased. Uh, the police have identified Paul Ruben Flores as the prime suspect in the case. And tonight in attendance here, we have Paul's mother, Susan, and her boyfriend, uh, Mike McConville. The reason why I'm here tonight is on May 25th, there's going to be nine years. And everybody in this room agrees that nine years is just too long. There's not really anything specific the mayor or city council can do, but I just think it's important for Kristen's memory that her name be spoken in this chamber tonight. In June of 2000, police got a search warrant to get on Susan Flores' property to look for Kristen or items belonging to her. They used ground-penetrating radar. The FBI told Mr. and Mrs. Smarts that there were some anomalies in the backyard, and so the results were inconclusive. So the reason why you see me around town right now with the sign is to dig up Susan Flores' backyard is I'm hoping that law enforcement can get a second search warrant. The Flores do not like the fact that I'm in town, but I have a standing offer. It's been up there for years that if they will waive the Fifth Amendment and agree to cooperate with the San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Department, answer all their questions to their satisfaction, then I will shut my website down, I'll shred that banner, and I'll go back to North Carolina the same night. But by and large, just the name of Kristen Denise Smart needs to be spoken in this chamber. There's nothing specific you guys can do, but you are the powers that be in this community, and uh, it means a lot to Mrs. Smart just to, just to say her name in front of you. That's about all I have, and I thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak here tonight. Okay, thank you for your comments. And then after the, the town hall was over, I said, I went to the, I said, I need to go get my sign. And this surprised me. They didn't escort me back there. They said, oh, just go back there and get it. It's no problem. Just go back there. So I walked back down that hallway by myself, and I walk into the conference room in the back, and guess what I see? I see the police chief that I was just talking to, 
I see another guy, and then I see Mike Lacondo. But here's the thing, they weren't sitting at the desk. They were leaning back to one of those, you know, those $500 government chairs that leaned back and had their feet up on the chair next to them on the table and they had a toothpick in their mouth. They were back there shooting the shits. And as soon as I walked in, they saw me and they all just snapped to attention. And I just looked at them and said, oh, this explains a lot. And I got my sign and I walked right back outside. That's a true story. Dennis continues to update Son of Susan regularly until August 2005, when in the turn of all turns, Susan Flores and Mike McConville file a lawsuit against Stan and Denise Smart. The suit charges that Dennis is acting at the behest of the Smart family and that Stan and Denise are therefore legally and financially responsible for the Flores family's severe emotional distress and lost income. It's a devastating blow to the Smart family who still don't know where their daughter is and who have no agency over Dennis Mann. But there's a small silver lining. As part of the discovery proceedings, the suit opens up Susan Flores and Mike McConville to having their yard searched again to prove whether or not Dennis's harassment is actually unwarranted. The Smart's attorney, Mark Connolly, negotiates with the Flores' attorney without the involvement of the Sheriff's Department. They fly in a ground-penetrating radar expert from Denver, Colorado, and on March 31, 2007, he meticulously combs the concrete. He finds a few anomalous features that he can't identify and notates the locations. When he's finished, he flies back to Denver, and a few months pass before the smart's attorney is able to negotiate, having a small portion of the concrete excavated to follow up on some of the anomalies. On May 22nd, a crew digs up the concrete, and the next day the Santa Maria Times runs an article that begins, 11 years after Cal Poly freshman Kristen Smart disappeared, her family has finally ruled out one of the long-rumored locations of her body. When I read this article last fall, I almost stopped my research right there. Denise Smart is quoted as saying, there's a sense of relief that the backyard is now crossed off. But what Denise doesn't know at the time is that the excavation crew wasn't given permission to dig up certain parts of the yard, including... There was a six foot by three foot planter that was filled with plants and rocks. Based on our agreements with the attorneys, we could not alter or get into that planter. So that was not able to be searched by GPR. And that was of some concern to us. That's Brenda Gillen, a journalist who was present for the entire ground penetrating radar search in March 2007, and who took meticulous notes for an article she was writing about Professor Lawrence Conyers, the radar operator. Notes, which she's kept. If you don't mind, I'll just kind of read through these. This is kind of the rundown of uh, what I thought were the salient details. We spent all day in Susan Flores' yard. The people present there, according to my notes, were me, Larry Conyers, Mark Connolly, a videographer whose name I do not know, and two helpers. Also present were Susan Flores, her boyfriend, and Ruben Flores. It was a tiny yard on a hill that the yard was nearly completely covered in concrete. The yard was very cluttered with tools, furniture, and debris. All of that had to be moved multiple times throughout the day so that the ground penetrating radar search could get a clear view of what was underneath. Initially, there were three areas of interest that Larry found that he called anomalous features. 
and two features of higher interest, one near the planter and one nearby. There is no conclusion on whether a body is buried there. I think it's possible that it could have been missed. The investigation was bungled so badly that I believe it was a month before any real law enforcement was brought in. It was uh, 2007, which was 11 years after her disappearance, that Professor Conyers and I were there. In that time, I think it might be reasonable to assume that had a body ever been in that location, it could have been moved. The other thing that is not in my notes, but I recall very clearly, is that Susan Flores wanted to make it known that she wasn't afraid that we were going to find anything. Um, but Ruben Flores was quite frightening to me. He was watching us very intently the entire day. We could see him looking at us from inside the house. It, my gut feeling is the people who know where Kristen Smart is are Paul Flores and Ruben Flores. After our conversation, Brenda emails me literally hundreds of photos that were taken that day which shows Susan's backyard in detail. After a year of research, it's a level of insight that I never thought I would have. I send an email to Professor Lawrence Conyers, the ground-penetrating radar operator, just to see if he'd be willing to talk. And to my surprise, he tells me he'd love to. What should I call you? Are you Dr. Lawrence? Oh, Larry, you can call me Larry. And so why did they reach out to you? Is well, because I'm the guy who wrote all the books on it. Larry's not speaking figuratively. He's the author of several textbooks on ground-penetrating radar and has degrees in geology, geophysics, and anthropology. He separated the patio into grids and then scanned the sections in 2D before rendering them in 3D on a portable monitor. It would be like mowing the lawn back and forth, back and forth, back and forth with a, an, a radar antenna that is very high resolution and there was a like a poured patio as i recall and i've got a, i've got some pictures and a map of it someplace and there was a, a some planting beds and not much else so essentially every bit of area in the backyard that was open enough for us to move around in we collected radar data except he wasn't able to search everywhere Remember the side of the house where it meets the driveway? The spot where the Lassiter family kept their trash cans, where cadaver dogs reacted in March of 97? Susan Flores had a garage built on top of that spot in 1999. There was supposition that the garage floor had been poured since the abduction, or since the disappearance, we'll call it. And so we attempted to get the mother to clean a bunch of the trash out of the garage and as i recall it was a trailer of some sort and we actually pulled the trailer out of the garage but then it was stacked up with boxes and other stuff like that that we couldn't get them to move and so i did collect radar data inside the garage and and what we found was that when they poured the concrete in the garage they put wire mesh in as reinforcing in it and that really distorted the radar waves. We were getting nothing substantial through that wire mesh. So he wasn't able to read through the garage floor. 
and he wasn't able to search the soil planter boxes, the ones that were cut out of the concrete in the summer of 1996 before the Lassiter family moved in. Because they were up against the retaining wall and surrounded by brick scalloping that made it impossible to fit his antenna in them, and Susan wouldn't give permission to alter them. He also explains to me that ground-penetrating radar can't exactly see through concrete like an X-ray, and it certainly can't image something like a skeleton. And you don't get reflections off bones. I've never seen anybody ever show any results where bones themselves would produce radar reflections because the bone chemistry and the bone mineralogy and the way it retains water is not that different than the surrounding ground and therefore it does not give contrasts like we would hope. What it does is show where parts of the soil have been disturbed. Spots where the earth was dug down into and then refilled. And he does find a few spots like that under the concrete. And so up against that retaining wall, we found a trench that was small. It wasn't the size of a human body. It was maybe two feet long and half a foot wide or something like that. And we found one or two little point sources that would have been buried pieces of junk. I don't know what, beer cans or who knows what. And that was all we found in the backyard. Larry used a 900 megahertz antenna. And when I tell him that the first search of Susan's yard used 200 megahertz, he's appalled. The first radar operator might as well have been using a lawnmower. And the west side of the house, where the first radar operator noted pieces of broken concrete and dirt stains against the wall and the fence, Larry wasn't able to search there for some reason, which he can't recall. Actually, you know what? I think I... Well, you know, if you're really into this, you should just... We should just hang up and and call me back in 10 minutes and let me pull out my notes. Absolutely. I know where, I know where to find those. Okay. Um, we're going to hang up and let me go down to my archive and find those field notes. Call me, call me back in 10 minutes. You got it. Thank you. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, I found my, my notes. Uh, This was March 31st, 2007, East Branch Street, which is the address. You probably know this already. That's right. I'm I'm looking at the the map of the backyard. On the north side of the house, there was a closet uh, built onto the north side of the house. And then there was also a a kind of a, a, a ramshackle laundry room that was built on the northeast side of the house. And then there, there was a little area in between the laundry room and the garage that was a poured concrete patio. The story was that it had been there ever since the house was built. And, and then there was the garage, and the garage was to the east of the house, and it projected all the way to the north right up to the property line. In the backyard, there were four planters that were up against the north wall. Along that north wall, there was a long planter, and and then there were three smaller planters that were about a foot and a half square or so that had stuff growing in them. 
uh, they were right up against the concrete wall. But these antennas are such that you, you know, you can't go right against the wall because the antennas are wide themselves. For some reason, we never collected data on the west side of the house between the wood fence and the house, and I can't say why. And and by the way, my notes also show that 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 garage. Uh, I only went right down the middle of the garage. This is what my memory was that you were you and I were talking about. But my memory was right that we couldn't do the side of the garage because it was just stuff packed in there. So in answer to your question, did we do the whole thing? The answer is no. We didn't do the west of the house. The, the west side of the house was definitely not surveyed. And the whole garage I'm still interested in, and, and if people really are wanting to take another stab at it, the way to do it would be to actually move all that crap out of the garage and then to use the equipment that actually looks through the wire mesh in the floor, which has only been invented in the last few years. Anyway, I hope that helps. So the west side of the yard, where the Lassiter family heard a watch alarm beeping every night, was not searched. The six foot by three foot planter box couldn't be searched and the east side of the yard, where Mary Lassiter found an earring and where a metal trash can had been stored by Ruben Flores until he came and removed it, the same spot where cadaver dogs showed interest in 1997. There was a garage built right on top of it, which also could not be properly searched. In a follow-up email, I asked Larry to clarify his professional opinion on the status of Susan's backyard, and he replies with this, I have learned much about GPR interpretation in complex areas, such as the backyard and garage with all the metal. And looking at my report, I can now see some other things that perhaps could be investigated, based on what I have learned about GPR in the last five years or so. I found the report and all my original data, just in case something moves along on this. He also reminds me in our phone call that the only reason that any of this happened is because Susan Flores and Mike McConville sued the Smart family. The only reason we were able to do anything there was because of the lawsuit. That opened them that up to discovery, and that's what allowed us into the backyard. The Flores family suing the Smart family led to a partial dig of Susan Flores's backyard. The Flores family sued the Smart family because of an unrelenting pizza delivery driver from North Carolina. I always wanted to do something big in my life. To this day, Susan Flores's backyard on East Branch Street has never been completely dug up or officially cleared. In 2012, sonofsusan.com goes offline, and Dennis Mann's new website is even more direct, digupthyard.com, which he still runs today. And Dennis's argument for doing so is simple. Sheriff's investigators had a warrant, written by the FBI, to search anywhere they suspected Kristen's body or her belongings could be. And by choosing not to dig up the concrete, whatever their reasons might have been, they disobeyed the order and allowed the warrant to expire. He wants it dug up on principle. The cops are to reasonably search anywhere there's a reasonable expectation that evidence may be located. I've got an email from the FBI agent who wrote the warrant telling me the first warrant authorized a dig 
they didn't want to do it because they would have to pay for repairs if Kristen wasn't seen. That's from the FBI agent who wrote the warrant. And I'm supposed to ignore that? I can't do it, Chris. I can't, I can't ignore that. I'm getting emotional now. They gotta go do it. They don't get to not do it. But I don't think she's there. Next time. Now this ends part two of um, this episode. Again, we, today we listen to episode three of Your Own Backyard, which is their own backyard, which is the investigators who investigated Chris, Kristen, Jimmy Smart's case, literally we're trying to find ways to dig through um, Susan Flores' backyard, but um, they found nothing. Surprisingly, they found nothing. But also, while that was going on, um, Chris, the podcaster, was trying to find more information on Paul Flores, her son, and luckily he did. He found one of his ex-co-workers that worked at the Outback Steakhouse with him as a server and a waiter. And she just was like, oh, okay, maybe he's a loner, maybe we should talk to him, because being that he's a cook, he's in the kitchen, maybe I should strike up conversation. You know, kind of like one of those women. Like me, I will strike up on this conversation. Oh, you were like her position. I'll be like striking up a conversation with him. Yeah, yeah, yada. Like you know, when I maybe down the road, so I got to know the guy. He probably might be a total asshat. And then we get to episode four, the son of Susan. It's, again, as we know, we got from Dennis Man that. The reason why it was called the Son of Susan is because Son of Sam was taken. I think that was make a familiar tone because, again, Son of Susan, her name was Susan Flores, it made perfect sense. And I understand that because I was trying to make it right. I'm trying to grasp the reader to read it, to watch it, to listen to it. Same thing. So, yeah, it was about this guy who wanted to find out another little young woman um same name but different last name is Kirsten and um as he was doing that he wanted to talk to the family of the Flores but they couldn't because they kept knocking him down Telling him, like, oh, get inside, get inside, you know, shut the door, don't talk to him, all that stuff. They try to kind of, like, block him out. They're like, we don't want to talk to you, type of thing. Like, we can't talk to you, we shouldn't be talking to you without our lawyer present. Meanwhile, Dennis Mann wasn't even a cop. He was just a normal citizen, which just not even a PI, not even a private investigator. He was just a normal person. 
trying to find out who, like, if what happened to this woman, you know, and if they've done it or not. And one time, Dennis Mann actually went to Susan Flores' house, and he decided to go to the house, knock on the door, and luckily the one time that her ex-husband was there, and he saw him, and, um, they called the cops multiple times to their own house because of this man. And I believe I know why, because Dennis was trying to get under their skin, trying to get under their skin to do something, because... Again, not all law, law enforcement officers are the same as New York State. It's completely different. So, what happened is that once the cops get there, they tell him to get off the property along with his ex-wife and he gets off. But this time, this time, when Dennis comes back, he just takes, starts taking pictures across the street, and then Susan got mad, called the cops, but the thing is, you can't tell him to get off your property if he's taking pictures of you on, on public property, so it's not really private property if he's taking pictures on public property across the street, so, mm-hmm. So, this guy kind of steps on a few toeses with um, the Flores family. But then, um, towards the end of the episode, up to four. We hear from Chris, the podcaster, when he's talking about, again, penetrating radar over mains through the dirt on the Flores' house again. And here are several other people that were there, their stories, and how it went down, and what was happening. Like, for example, one of them was like, oh, um, yeah, he, yeah, um, Ruben Forrest was doing it, and he kind of gave me, like, not like a creepy vibe, but an off vibe, because he kept staring. But Susan Forrest was like, you can do all you want, type of vibe, you can do all you want, you're not going to find anything. And their boyfriend did, did not give a care in the freaking world. He did not care. But anyway. And then he goes straight to another um, person um, that Chris was talking to. A male. One of the ground penetrating people that he wrote ground, ground penetrating books. At the point. Anthropologist, and so, and he has other things in his title, so on and so forth. But he goes on talking about what happened, what could have done better, and like if they had more time, they could have found more, you know. But you know, circumstances are circumstances, you really have a limited amount of time to find certain things and to find certain people. But anyway, um, they found. Really, not much. They only probably found like remnants of stuff. But one of the women that he spoke to in this episode, episode four, she said like, if obviously if we saw like little tiny remnants, obviously the body 
was there and probably was possibly moved to my house. And it's gonna take some like little particles stuff. Which I was like gonna say like that's probably why. And um yeah. That was episode three. Um their own backyard. And episode four is the son of Susan. So next time in my backyard I'm gonna talk about episode five and episode six. Okay. That's all for now. Talk to you guys in the next one. Take care. Peace.